0: from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, And of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right. Hey, well, good morning again and welcome to Trinity Community Church. If this is your first time, we're really glad you're with us and it's great to see you. We have been uh, doing over the spring a seven-week series that we're calling Deeply Formed Church. You know, we are a, we're a young church. We're uh, about four years old is a congregation, and so we're still sort of taking shape as a church. You know, we still have like exposed HVAC and wires hanging in the back. We have this one light directly above where I sit that is blinking. It exists solely to increase my patience. The Lord decided I needed some extra Christ-likeness. We put that right above me. I'm learning a lot this morning. But our, our desire as a church is to ask the question, what what will make us a, a healthy church for the long haul? Our goal is not just to be healthy as a four-year-old church, but a 40-year-old church and a 400-year-old church. Our desire as a leadership team is that Trinity Community Church outlasts every one of us in this room. And so we've been, been asking, what are, what are some of the ways that we can put down our roots as a young congregation? Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the scriptures often use biological and agricultural language when they're talking about spiritual growth. And the, the point that Jesus and the other writers are trying to make is that spiritual growth is never mechanical, it's never linear, it's never like set it and, and forget it. But instead the language is of a a, a seed becoming a sapling, or, or branches being connected to the vine and, and bearing fruit. Uh, those who have wisdom are called oaks of righteousness in Isaiah. And so the idea is that we ought to to picture spiritual growth both individually and in a congregation like this, not mechanically, but but organically, that that it'll happen the way a a tree grows or a child grows, it'll it'll seem sporadic, it'll happen in fits and spurts, but the one thing that we can count on is that it will, will take a while, it'll be slow growth. And so that's what we're pursuing as a congregation So far, we've looked at six aspects of a deeply formed church, intimacy with God, love for his word, love for one another, a life of prayer and worship, love for the poor and hurting. And this morning, we're looking at number seven, living with an eternal perspective. And so our guide this morning is the Apostle Paul and his message to young Timothy and to the churches that are around Ephesus, this text that we just read, and the Apostle of he invites us to, to reflect on our lives, to consider eternity, and, and then to align our, our lives here on Earth with what he calls the life that is truly life, for the coming age, eternal life. And so we're going to look at three things: the posture of eternity, the practices of eternity, and then the patient hope of eternity. So posture, practices, and then patient hope, one word so it fits my alliteration. patient hope. All right, the first one is a posture of eternity, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so Paul, right out of the gate, uses this word contentment. He used it in verse 6, and then in verse 7, again, he uses the word content. But immediately, and right after this paragraph, he goes on to, to talk about eternal life. He goes on to talk about Jesus' return and the age that is to come upon his return. And so the, the real message of the passage is living for eternity. And yet the first word that he uses is contentment. And so really what he's saying is that there, there's a posture to living for eternity and it's contentment. Contentment is one of the old virtues that the church used to teach on a lot. I mean, books and books used to be written on contentment, and it's somewhat fallen out of of style, I think, in the contemporary church. But the word content in the original Greek, it actually just takes two words and, and shoves them together, which the Greek language often does. But it's the word full and the word soul, and it just makes them one word, full soul. And so to be content is to live with a full soul, not Full in in itself, like full of ourselves, but full by itself. Meaning to be content is is to need nothing else. It's to have all that it needs. And so contentment pictured in the scriptures is true freedom. Our culture pictures true freedom as having all the possessions that we want or having enough money that we can get anything that we need. But the scriptures show us that contentment is the truest form of freedom there is. Now, maybe a little embarrassing to admit, but I love following financial scandals. I don't know if that's just me or if everybody else is kind of interested. I mean, I remember when, when Enron was happening and all those others back in the early 2000s, like Enron hid all of this debt and then they cost people like $90 billion. I mean, these are like real individuals and real families that lost like their life savings overnight because Enron was just lying on all of their financial statements. I mean, it was a tragedy, and yet at the same time, I remember thinking, like, how did they hide 90 billion dollars? Like, what size briefcase is that? I know, it's dumb. It's a dumb joke. <laughs> but I think, too, of, of the ESPN documentary, Broke, which is about athletes who make millions of dollars, and then when they reach retirement, they have absolutely nothing left, you know, like in their 30s. Or maybe you've seen statistics on people who win the lottery. 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt within seven years. And a shocking number are, are actually dead within the first year. It's, it's out of control. But it's easy to, to look at these public examples of, of greed and, and not look at our own hearts. I mean, I've never lied on a, on a financial report. But, but I see in myself over and over the temptation to want a little bit more. You know, to, to see other families' vacations on Instagram and think, man, if we could only, if we could only go there, if we could only do that. To, to daydream about, you know, receiving millions and millions of dollars so I can just buy all of the road bikes that I want, just a few more. And yet Paul writes in First Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. It says a lot of things are lost, all the things that we're pursuing that we think is gain. There's one thing that's real gain, and it's pursuing godliness with contentment. This is what so many people lack in our society. So many people cannot separate money and possessions from the core of their identity. Money is like the scoreboard in American society, and it leads people to often become the worst possible versions of themselves. Richard Foster, a Christian author, has written, Without Christ, we have no unity or focus around which our lives are oriented. And because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us to an insane attachment for things. And it really is insane to live for money and possessions, if you think about it. Something that can be immediately destroyed or or lost or devalued in a moment. I came across an essay this week by Robert Capon. I don't know if anybody knows that name, but Capon was a, an Episcopal priest, and he was actually a New York Times food critic. He was a controversial author. So when I'm reading my Capon books, I kind of keep them hidden. I saw a guy at Uprise Bakery reading a Capon book, and I was like, wow, in public? And he's like, yeah, I live out of town. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> it's not that controversial, but he says some wild stuff. But he's got this essay called The Religion of Money, he says, I think it's safe to say that no child is ever given money without some careful indoctrination into the religion of money. We may occasionally loosen up on the religion of food to give children ice cream just for the fun of it, but give them money just for the fun of it, never. Money isn't funny. It's a solemn subject and must never be handed around with all the reverences and genuflections due the holy. In fact, I would go so far as to say, that it's in connection with money that children first acquire their sense of the awe that the holy is supposed to evoke. They may be instructed how to say their prayers to God or how to conduct themselves when receiving communion, but in no case is the need for reverence, the seriousness of purpose, and for the careful watching of every step better taught than when they're given their first dimes, quarters, or nickels. Now, what he recommends in this article is when you're at a family gathering or a social gathering to stand up like you're making a speech and then take a $20 bill and just rip it up into little pieces, like just to gauge people's responses. And his point is simply that money, people take money so, so seriously with a religiosity unrivaled by almost anything else, including religion itself. What Paul is calling us to is contentment. He's saying there is a better form of freedom available. True freedom is found in Christ, not in having money or possessions, but having a totally different approach to it. And so how do we find it? That's the second thing, the practices of eternity. Verse 11, but you, man of God, speaking to, to Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight, the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. As Paul often does in his letters, he's gonna call us to a life of transformation. He's gonna show us sort of two ways to live. Paul's often using the language of turning from something and turning to something else, or taking something off and putting on something else. And he's gonna he's gonna do that now, but he's gonna use even stronger language when he says, flee from all this, from the love of money, from greed. Flee from all this. Do not be arrogant and nor put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And then he doesn't say just turn towards or put on, but he says pursue righteousness, like chase after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He goes on to say at the end of the passage, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, Paul is leading us to eternity over and over and over. Take hold of eternal life. Lay up treasure in the coming age. This is the life that is truly life. Like there's a life that's just life, but then there's a life that is like capital L, life. He's saying, chase this life, the the real life, the life that is truly life. And so now with eternity in mind, the the apostle, he calls us to two things. And the first one is this virtue list that he does often, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You see these in almost every one of his letters. They're like a, a different form of the fruit of the spirit. So he's saying, put on the character of Christ, be like him, be godly in everything you do. And then the second thing he calls us to is to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And this is what he says lays up a treasure for the coming age. So he's saying, you will be transformed by these two practices, godliness and generosity. Now, you might say, my goodness, why are we talking about money so much? I didn't know that's what we were getting into today. But it's interesting how much Jesus and the New Testament writers in particular are talking about money and possessions. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, the closer he gets to the end of his life on his his journey to Jerusalem and the cross, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, it's actually the more frequently he talks about money and possessions, the reason is because he's always going after our hearts. He's never just telling us what to do or how, how much to give or anything like that, but rather he's trying to get at our treasure, to use his word. He understands how our hearts work. He knows that, as Paul says, money is so frequently the root of other sins, jealousy, envy, theft, anger, and so on. It can so easily become our identity, our status, our comfort and security. Losing it becomes our greatest fear. And the whole thing, according to our passage, is that money is so uncertain. It's fragile in this life, and it's gone in the life that truly is life. And so to go back to our old pal Robert Capen, he concludes in his essay, there is, of course, a cure for the malaise. It's called giving. You would think perhaps that the Christian church, with its gospel, that all religion is over and done with, would get this straight, but it seldom does. Look at the average church's pitch for pledges. I love this. All it should really say to its members is, look, you need to give money away in order to sass the system of money back. Let us have some of what you give it away, and we'll get rid of it for you in all the crazy ways we can think of. What it actually says to them, however, is, we need money to make this shop look respectable, Here's our budget, study it, and see if you don't think we're a good investment target. Do you see the church acts far more often like an institution selling a product than one offering liberty to slaves of the system? I love that. See, Jesus said, I have come to set the captives free. And is not our world completely captivated by the need for money, for possessions, for status, fame, comfort, and ease. Jesus came so that we might be able to flee from all of this and pursue godliness. Now, if that wasn't enough, Paul actually gives us another reason to pursue godliness and generosity because he says these things will translate to a real reward in the age to come. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 19. He says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In fact, the reward language of the scriptures is so constant, so frequent, that C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We've talked about this before, that we are creatures of love and desire. We follow our hearts more than our minds. Our thoughts tend to follow our feelings and motivations and try to rationalize what we already feel. And so if we have a strong desire, which all of us do from birth that can align with a type of love for money, a love of self, the only way to get rid of that desire is not to try to, to get rid of it or, or just, you know, by, by sheer willpower and self-control, try to just stop it. It does not work for human beings. An old desire can only be replaced by a new, stronger, better desire. What Paul is calling us to, what he's saying that desire is, is eternal life. Living for the age that is to come. Understanding that Christ will indeed return. All things will be made new and that's where our hope is. So now I'm getting into the third thing. That's the patient hope of eternity. Paul kind of concludes this passage by saying, I charge you To keep this command, that is, to, to flee from the love of money, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. I don't know if you noticed that Paul basically gets sidetracked just by the word God. He like goes off on the, I mean, he goes, it's like a full benediction out of nowhere. I imagine he was like this all the time. Like, how was your day, Paul? It was good. You know, I talked about God, the one true God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who dwells in unapproachable. It's like, whoa, Paul, thought we were hanging out. It's like, come back down. Just the mere mention of God and the thought of eternal life gets him so overwhelmed that he actually gives us a full benediction, but he's got more to say, so then he has to come back and keep going. I love it. Romans has three benedictions. He just gets excited, doxology. He's like, I've actually got a couple more chapters. What Paul is doing here is he's hitting the reset button on our idea of hope, heaven, and eternity. I think if you ask the average believer what their hope is beyond this life, they'll say something like, to, to go to heaven when I die. And if you ask what heaven's like, it's, it's a sort of vague notion of, of being with, with the angels in, in the clouds and, and having no, no suffering and gas prices that are less than like $4.50 a gallon. But is that all there is to hope for? We probably talk about this a couple months here because we think it's so important, but the true and central hope of Christianity is a new creation. It's Jesus restoring all things to himself under God, it's everything being made new again at his return. This eternal kingdom, which has forever existed, first arrives on earth through the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why he says the kingdom is at hand when he starts his ministry. That same kingdom was brought into a new level of fullness at the moment of his resurrection. After paying for our sins on the cross, rising from the dead, that resurrection is the, the cataclysmic event that starts a whole new order on earth. And then everything is moving towards this grand finale that is the new creation. So scriptures tell us, even in this passage, that Jesus will return at the sounding of the trumpet and the twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised. The living believers will be caught up with him, will be given resurrected bodies. All sin will be no more. The enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire. We will be made new. The whole earth will be made new a new heavens even, and a new earth coming together. No longer a separation between the place where God dwells and the place where we dwell, but a new heavens and earth, like one thing, new heavens and earth, like a a heavenly earth, everything remade, everything perfected. And so the question is, what is our task? Like between the empty tomb and the, the streets of gold, what is it that we do? We, we live for eternity. We, we live into that final day as much as we possibly can, knowing that the whole cosmos will be brought to completion at the return of Christ. Remember, if the whole point of human life is just to go to heaven and this, this earth is just burned up, then we have nothing really to live for other than to be saved and know that we're safe for heaven. But that's not the whole vision of Christianity. Christianity. Instead, one day, all things will be restored to Christ. He'll be personally present to us on earth, his resurrected people, all sin and brokenness gone. And if that's true, then what we do here and now as his new creations, as Paul calls us already, what we do matters for all eternity. What we do in Jesus's name and for his kingdom lasts into all eternity. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, says N.T. Wright. Every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read or walk. Every act of care and nurture for one's fellow human beings. Every prayer, every deed that spreads the gospel or builds up the church. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. It's a call for us, as we talked about last week, to to care for and cultivate our own square inch of this cosmos, the place where God has put us here and now, how can we care for and create that with, with eternity in mind? Not living for that square inch, but knowing that we can cultivate that in a way that prepares us and prepares it for eternal life. And if that's true, that the hope of Christian life is this new creation. What does it mean for how we use our our days and our time, our money and our possessions, our relationships? How does that transform the way we think about this current age? Why store up heavens here on earth where everything rusts and fades when we can live into eternity today, when we can sass the system by pursuing godliness and generosity? Jesus came to set the captives free to renew us, one day to resurrect us, to set the whole world right again. The point is that we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until our death or until the return of Christ. The message for us today is take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Paul comes back to it a second time. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray.